Okay, if you would please open your Bible to Luke chapter 22. We're going to close out the chapter this morning. Luke 22, we'll begin in verse 54. Last verse is verse 71. Okay, Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 71. Before we read this, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your promise that you are always with us. Thank you, Father, that you never leave and you never forsake us. I thank you also, Father, that you desire to have us filled with your Holy Spirit. And that's my prayer for me and for your people, my church family this morning. Oh Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that the response that we give to your word, the response we have to your voice, your call, your commandment, all of it, oh God, that it would be worship, true worship, that brings you honor and brings you glory. I thank you, Father, for what you're going to accomplish. And I pray it would be all the desire of my heart, and it's, it's my prayer, Father, that you have all glory. I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. It's really hard to imagine a worse failure than Peter's on the night that Jesus is arrested. He promised all steadfastness, but all that he does just adds to Jesus' wounds. Peter fails, and he fails miserably. And there's such a contrast between the first nine verses of our passage that focus on him and the last nine which focus on Jesus because where Peter fails, Jesus holds fast. So let's read these verses this morning, beginning in verse 54. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him. For he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. 
But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Again, it's hard to imagine a worse failure than Peter's on this night. You know, the mockery of the soldiers against Jesus is one kind of suffering, one kind of abuse. But this from Peter, his friend and his disciple, don't think that Jesus doesn't feel it. Don't think that it's not worse than what the the soldiers inflicted with their words because what Peter says cuts to the heart. We're, We're talking about with Jesus, we're talking about a human heart. We're talking about human feelings, not sinful feelings, but human feelings. And what Peter does cuts right to the heart. His denials are so strong. He doesn't hem and haw when people ask him about being a disciple of Jesus. He is clear and he is unequivocal and he swears by God. He doesn't know this man. But again, where Peter absolutely fails, Jesus holds fast. The religious authorities and political authorities on this day think they are about to close the curtains on Jesus for good. No more of this man. All of the happenings on Thursday night, this Thursday night and Friday that follows, it's going to be it for Jesus. But in fact, it's the exact opposite. Instead of, you know, closing the curtain, so to speak. It's like they're serving to pull them back. Because what we have here is the glorious unveiling, revelation of who Jesus our Lord is. Jesus Himself says that He is going to be raised and seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's going to be vindicated. And He is going to be victorious And His people, here's the truth, His people are going to be vindicated and victorious with Him. His reward is our reward. All of our failures, even our Peter-like cowardice and Peter-like shame and guilt is going to be paid for in full and forgiven and the reward of Christ is ours. He is victorious and we are victorious in Him. This this portion of Scripture is really heart-wrenching. I mean, we feel for Peter. We grieve for Peter. And I think if, if we are careful, if we are into this as we ought to be into this, then our hearts break for our Lord. But there's no despair here. Not for Peter and not for Jesus. Because Jesus, again, is going to be victorious. And His reward is ours. He will be rewarded for all of His faithfulness and all of the unfaithful who put their hope in Him also have His reward. Let's look at these verses. 54 again. Then they seized Him, uh, then they seized Him and led Him away, bringing Him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. The disciples flee initially when Jesus is led away, and most of them stay gone. And so we can assume that's according to Mark's account. 
we, we can assume that Peter initially fled as well. But in the process of retreating somewhere along the way, he stops, turns around and begins to follow again, but keeping a safe distance. It says in 55, And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. It might seem like Peter's fall is sudden and unexpected, like, man, I didn't see that coming. Like it's just a sudden crash off the end of the cliff, but that's not the way it is. This this going into the lion's den, so to speak, into the courtyard of the high priest's home, this is a rash and a foolish move but it fits exactly with the way that Peter has been acting all night long. I mean, everything that has come out of his mouth, every move that he has or has not made, has really been foolish and has been sinful. And it's a steady descent into sin here. I mean, think about it. Think about his earlier in the afternoon, his boastful denial that he would ever deny Jesus and how rashly he spoke. Think about being in the garden when he should have been praying instead he was sleeping. When he should have been still instead he was attacking. And now he is, again, to put it one way, stepped right into the middle of the lion's den. It's a steady descent into sin. It's one compromise after another. One small sin has led to the next largest, larger sin. And all along the way, in every failure, there is this pride. I can make it. I can stand on my own. I don't need to heed the Lord's warning. I got this. I can overcome. Even if I'm standing alone, I can do it. And he doesn't. Not in any of those things. I mean, his boastfulness, right then and there, where he says he's standing, he's falling, he's failing. So he heeds no warnings. He doesn't even pray when the Lord tells him to. And this is the way it is with you and me. This is how we go into sin. It's not just an all of a sudden crash. Whoa, where did that come from? It's a steady descent. It always is. One compromise here leads to the next compromise. One small sin that we justify and excuse leads to another sin. And all of a sudden, I pray there is that jolt back into reality. Where am I? How did I get here? But this is the way it is. Let me ask you, let me press you. Where does the direction that you are facing lead to? The way that you are going now, where does it lead to? Is there compromise? Is there any justification of sin going on in your heart? Is there anything that you are hanging on to and thinking, I can still think this way. I can still treat this person that way. I can still hold on to this desire. I can allow these thoughts in my head and still be spiritually warm. I can still draw near to Jesus. I can still fellowship with Him. Is there any compromise 
Are we justifying the things that we do that are wrong? Look at where it led Peter. Listen, you're not going to be an exception to the rule. We're talking in Sunday school this morning about one of Satan's most early deceptions in life being this feeling that we're invincible. Like the bad thing, the bad things that happen to other people aren't going to happen to me. We feel invincible and we feel that way spiritually. Like we can do this and it's not going to lead to this next thing. And we're so easily self-deceived. Peter is here warming himself at the fire, but his heart is growing cold. And same thing happens to us. Look at verse 58 now. Or uh, not 58. Where am I here? 56. It says, Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. This is one of those occasions in Luke's narrative, and it doesn't happen very often, where he he slows down. It's like he slow motions the narrative. He gives us these little incidental details that are not necessary to understand what is going on, but really help us to put us there. And it's all to, I think it's to dramatic effect. This is a, a cold night in spring in the city of Jerusalem. People are kind of huddling. Uh, they've got their, their cloaks about them wrapped around their heads. They're trying to stay warm, keeping at the fireside. Their breath, you know, visible in the nighttime air, all of that. Perhaps Peter's thinking, well, this is a perfect time to go in undetected. You know, everyone's kind of huddled down and everything. Now, If you're him, maybe you'd have to reason, okay, well, I can't stand away in the corner and keep to myself because that in itself will look suspicious. So I have to get in and amongst the crowd. I've got to talk a little bit so I can just pass myself off as just anybody, you know, who's trying to find out what's going on or something like that. But this is not the perfect night to go about undetected. This is the night where everyone's suspicious. It's the night of betrayal and arrest and violence, and everybody being on edge. And so he draws to the fire, and there's this servant girl there who is rather observant. And it's just the the flickering glow of the flame against Peter's face that gives her all the illumination that she needs. She recognizes him, and she is rather abrupt, and in no way private about the announcement. She shares it with everybody. He is one of them. And he is immediate in reply. He is forceful. He says, I do not know him. We're so used to this story that I think we often fail to get into it. And I I think, well, let's think about it this way. Imagine that you are going somewhere with a friend where there's going to be a group of people. Okay, and most likely this is a situation from your youth. And maybe this has happened to you before. If it hasn't, I don't think it'd take much to imagine what this would feel like. So you go with your close friend to this place where there's a group of people. And as soon as you get there, your close friend leaves your side and begins to, you know, uh, hang out with the others and completely ignore you. Almost like passing off like they don't even know you at all. Maybe it's happened to you. Maybe it hasn't. But if you think about it, if you imagine 
it, I think you can imagine the feeling of betrayal that would come with that. And even the suggestion there of what you're not worth, that these are the impressive people that I want to impress. You are not so impressive. And it just diminishes your worth. It says something about who you are. So Peter denies knowing the Lord. His heart is growing cold. And he can't stop it. Look at verse 58. It says, And a little later someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Three years of following Christ. Denied right here, all at once. He has witnessed Jesus for three years, witnessed the glory. He has been drawn into the sphere of the Lord's love and he is saying, I do not follow Him and I never did. The Christian heart can be such a treacherous place. And we really do deny Jesus in countless ways with our sins. And thank God that He never leaves because we wander all of the time. And if staying and being faithful and being there in glory at the end was up to you, it would never happen. In fact, if Jesus would release us, if He would let go of us and not keep us, we would have been long gone already. But He is faithful. He is holding fast to Peter even now as Peter turns his back on him. And He is holding fast to you. And does that not compel you to come near to Him and to stay? He is so good. He is so faithful. Why would we want to stray from Him? Why would we want to add to His wounds? Why would we want to dishonor such a good and a gracious King? It says in verse 59, and after an interval of about an hour still, Luke is the only one to note that particular time frame, So, I don't know what's going through Peter's head, but it says, after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Maybe he's been eavesdropping on Peter, on his conversations, or maybe he just engaged with Peter in conversation to pick up on the accent that he detected, thought he detected, and then to just, you know, out Peter. But he, he picks up on Peter's northern accent. Nothing wrong with a northern accent, let it be said. But he, he picks up on it and he says, he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. According to the other accounts, Matthew and Mark, Peter is, he is downright enraged at this point. He is furious. Mark is the one who gets the most specific. Listen to Mark's words. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, not meaning he is using foul, vulgar language, but he says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, that came, that came from Mark. That comes from Mark. You may know this already. We have very reliable historic testimony 
from very, very early after these Gospels were written that Mark's help in compiling his account of Jesus' life, his main help was Peter himself. So in other words, Peter confessed to Mark that on this night he called down the curses of heaven on himself if he knew Jesus. It had been Peter's confession. He was, you know, the, we could call Peter like the first among equals in the disciples. He's the spokesman of that group. And it had been his confession. He led the way in proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know it. We're convinced of it. That's why we follow you. That had been Peter's confession. Now Peter denies all knowledge of Jesus, God as his witness. That's what it means that he invoked a curse on himself and he swore he did not know him. And immediately it says, the end of verse 60, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Again, Peter has been denying Jesus now for more than an hour. And suddenly, with the crowing of the rooster, he is jolted back into reality. What a mercy from the Lord, truly. What a mercy. That there was just something that brought Peter back to his spiritual senses. It's kind of like what happens with the prodigal son, remember? It says he came to his senses. There he is in the the pigsty, longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs were eating. And then he came to himself and he, he, where am I? What am I doing? What do the servants back in my father's house have? Why am I here? That's Peter in this moment. He is jolted back into reality. What a mercy from the Lord. Ironically, he had been crowing earlier that day that he would never deny Jesus. And now it is the crow of the rooster that brings down all of his pride crashing to the earth. But this is a mercy from the Lord. And what a mercy it is. It's when the sinner hits rock bottom. It's when they wake up. It's There's nothing pleasant about it. It's extremely painful, but it is a mercy from God. And He does this for His people all of the time. And I pray that there is no one here who is just walking around like some spiritual zombie, feeling nothing about their sin, just going on and on and on like they're, like they're dead to it. May God wake us up. May He do whatever He must to wake up His people. Is there anyone here? who needs to wake up? Is there anyone here who is on the steady descent, compromise after compromise, soul, heart, hardening, sin, self-deception, wandering away from Christ? Come back. He will have you. That's His mercy. Verses 61 and 62. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. 
again, um, this is a detail that only Luke recounts for us. And what a moment this is. Maybe it's through an open window that Jesus and Peter can see one another. Maybe this entire time, Jesus ha- or Peter has had a view of what the Lord has already been suffering. You see, Matthew and Mark, they go back and forth between Peter's experience and Jesus, then back to Peter. So Jesus has already been suffering. He has been beaten. His, his face is probably bruising up and swelling. I imagine that his lip is split. There is blood dribbling down his chin. One eye perhaps is beginning to swell shut. He's got spit already on his face. The soldiers in there, they're laughing. While everyone's talking outside, they're laughing, they're mocking him, they're blaspheming him. And now Jesus looks up and he looks Peter dead in the eye. Across this distance, their eyes meet. Jesus knows. Jesus has always known. It's not a look of shock. He's not surprised by what he has heard. He predicted that this would happen. Our sin never takes the Lord by surprise. He's never caught off guard. And it's not some kind of withering stare like He's staring him down. You miserable failure. How could you do this to me? I believe that this is a personally sorrowful look. And it's sorrowful for Peter. That it's a look of compassion. Peter knows. The Lord knows. And look at what it says at the end of verse 61 into 62. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. How he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And it says, And Peter went out and wept bitterly. One writer says, Peter could defend himself from the look of the servant girl, but there's no defending himself from the look of Jesus. What will Peter do now? Will he deflect blame. Think about this. Jesus himself had predicted exactly that this would happen. So how can Peter do otherwise, right? And I have heard the question so many times, even from people who honestly are very immature in the faith and Uh, very young people, if the Lord is in absolute control, they might not word it just like this, but this is the effect of the question. If the Lord is in absolute control over good and over evil, how can I be responsible? How can I be held guilty for sin? And I, I know of people who just, you know, young, middle teens, who aren't living for the Lord whatsoever, who have heard enough about the Bible that they will bring up this question to others. Well, if God's in control, if He already knew this was going to happen, how can I be blamed? And if if you are ever tempted to think that way, or you might think that way, Jesus is in control, Jesus knew what would happen, how could it be otherwise? I'm not to blame then, I'm really not guilty. Peter disagrees. 
He disagrees. And if anybody could, could offer the excuse, it would be Peter, right? But if Peter had then shifted blame, like Eve in the garden, it was the serpent, or like Adam, it was the woman you gave me. If they deflect the blame, if Peter deflects the blame, he only falls further. But now in this moment, he is awakened. He's thinking, where am I? What have I done? It's just as Jesus said, and he could not feel any lower. But Peter has begun to rise. He has been descending. He's hit bottom. And when he leaves weeping bitterly, knowing that it's all on him, he has begun his ascent. And it's the same for you and for me. When we own our sin and we don't deflect blame, but we say, this is my doing. It's all my doing. This guilt is mine. We own it. Even if you can't feel at that point any worse, any more shameful, or be any more guilty, you have begun to rise. The Lord is lifting you up. The Bible says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And that brings us to the end of those first Nine heart-wrenching verses. Let's move on. Everyone around Jesus is being false, speaking falsely. Jesus alone is true and speaks the truth. Verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him, a blindfold. Get real. (laughs) A blindfold on him who sees all things to the heart of all things, to the very heart of these men. Jesus can expose them. He He knows all of their shame. He can expose it all. But he won't. It's just like Satan, you know, trying to, to goad him into this and that in the wilderness or the Pharisees along the way who demand certain signs or revelations from him, just like his attackers on this night. Jesus never lets his opponents dictate the terms of his revelation. Never. These people would goad him into speaking foolishly or... Maybe they just want him to beg for relief. But Jesus is silent. Is silent. Meanwhile, the word that the soldiers can't hear, which Jesus is speaking, according to his divine nature, is holding them together. They can't swing without his say-so. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The prophet Isaiah wrote 700 years before that night. I want to encourage you just to meditate on Scripture. 
You know, because these narratives are so familiar to us, it is so easy for us to to skim, read, uh, whatever the word is that I'm looking for. You know, it's for us to miss it. It's so easy for us to miss it. But in our hearts, not to break for the suffering of our Lord, but what love is in Him that He would be dishonored this way, that He would condescend to this level would bear these wounds of our sin for all the dishonoring that we have done. He suffers this on this night. It says in verse 66, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes. This is the Sanhedrin. And they led him away to their council and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now, this is an evil counsel, and this is a sham trial right from the get-go. There's no attempt to discover truth here. There's no real inquiry. I mean, what are they going to do? Bow down to Jesus if he confesses that he is the Christ after they've had him beaten? After his, you know, he's all swollen and bruised and they blasphemed him for much of the night? Are they now going to bow down? This is an evil counsel. Jesus knows their ploy and He's not going to play into their hands. And this is, they're pathetic. I like the word counsel, really. It speaks of schemes and plans and designs and advancement and purpose and achievement and all of that. And this is a pathetic, most pathetic counsel. They think that the fate of Jesus is in their hands. Here's the thing. It's not even that, it's not that an innocent man is in the hands of sinners. It's that sinners, them, are in the hands of the sovereign, him, and him alone. They are in his hands. But he said to them, it says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. So he's not going to speak so as to escape. If he says something, he wants them to know they do not take his life. He lays it down. They don't force it from him. He lays it down. So he says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus is showing them that everything that Satan is in them to do against him serves his purpose and serves his glory. He is the one in control. They think, again, as I said at the beginning, that they're closing the curtains on Jesus. No more of Jesus. You're not going to see any more of him. We're going to wipe the ground with his blood and wipe his name from existence. But what they are doing is drawing the curtains back. They're just servants in God's purpose to draw back the curtains on the glory of Jesus Christ. This is the unveiling of His glory. It's the revelation of our Lord. They reply, Are you the Son of God then? And He said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from His own lips. 
From the beginning of our time in Luke's Gospel, we have been asking ourselves the question, coming to the text with this question, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? Or to put it in the terms of the disciples one particular day, what manner of man is this? God has declared at His baptism, you are my beloved Son. God spoke again at His transfiguration, this is my Son, my chosen one. And now this council asks the question, are you the Son of God then? What is our answer? Not what do we say with our lips, but what does your heart say to Him? Is He the Son of God or isn't He? If He is, let's follow Him. If He isn't, then we don't need to worry about it. We can continue doing whatever we want to do. But if He is the Son of God, if He is the Word, the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the Father's glory, then let's be faithful. Let's hold fast to Him. Let's honor Him as He deserves. Everything He has said that we have seen in Luke's Gospel, everything that He has done, bears Him witness that this revelation is not made up from men. This is authored by God. And it is the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. And He commands our lives. Let's follow Him. Those who honor Him are with the Father. Those who honor Him, the Father will honor. Those who dishonor Him side with the counsel against Him. On this night, everyone fails but Jesus. Everyone is false, speaks falsely. Deny Him, beat Him, blaspheme Him. No one holds fast except for Christ. He holds fast for you and for me. And He is triumphant. Just as He says, from now on, He will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. There He is today at the right hand of the majesty on high, waiting for the Father's Word to come with judgment and salvation. He is victorious. But it's not only His victory. It's our victory. The faithful one has been victorious and rewarded. But not just for His sake. It's for your sake too. It's for you. It's your victory. And you have His reward. Although we have been Peter-like more often than we know, ashamed of Him, denying Him, with treacherous hearts, hardened, deceived by sin. And yet, as unfaithful and faithless as we are, He holds fast to us and He keeps us. This is the grace of God. All the reward of Christ He shares with His people. His death counted as ours. His resurrection is ours. His exaltation is ours. His glorification, that's ours. His reign forever, we will reign with Him. It's ours. His inheritance is ours. All things are yours. 
the New Testament declares. Who are we? But He loves us. And He holds fast to us. And He keeps us. So let us never be content to only add to His wounds and His grief. But let's honor our Lord and our Savior because He is so good to us. Let's pray. Your grace, Father, astounds us. It staggers us. It is, it's even, it feels like it's so good. Can it be true? But Lord, we know if we wrote the story, we would never write this in. We would never see ourselves so bad, so desperate, so lost as what we are we would have said, we're better than that. We deserve what's good. And Father, if it came to our knowledge that we were so bad, we would never believe that it could be so good now that we could be so delivered, so welcomed, that we could belong as we belong, that we could have this reward that all this grace could be ours to abound over all of our sin. Lord, I pray that You would give us faith to believe it. Help us, O Lord, to hold fast to Your Son by the power of the Spirit of Christ who indwells us. And I thank You, Lord, that You have not left it to us, but by the power of Your Spirit, in Christ Your Son, You hold to us. You keep us to the end. And we will be in glory with You because You will finish in us the work that You have begun. It is Your promise. It is sealed in the blood of Jesus. We thank You and praise You for it. Amen.